Dave, uh, thanks a lot for uh, taking the time today. And uh, I guess just give me a, a brief overview of, of how life for a comic who's used to being on the road has changed since uh, the commie virus came to town. <laughs> well, uh, first of all, thank you for uh, for having me. It's always a, a pleasure to speak with you and your audience. Um, yeah, life life for a comedian um, and a New Yorker has uh, has really changed quite a bit. I'm I'm out of the city at the moment. I skedaddled, got the wife and uh, daughter, and and got out of there. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was I was hitting the road pretty hard and working out a new hour of material and getting to meet hands and uh, meet fans and shake hands and all that stuff. And uh, yeah, so that all came to a screeching halt. But I, I consider myself very, uh, very fortunate, uh, especially with what's happening to so many people uh, around the world. Um, you know, I'm healthy, uh, my family's healthy, and I'm able to make uh, still make a living off the, the podcast. So um, I'm, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. Let's get uh, people uh, to know about your podcast and where to find it. Oh yeah, sure. It's a uh, part of the problem. Uh, it's available everywhere. Podcasts are available, and it's up on on YouTube as well. But if you want to uh, subscribe, you can go to gasdigitalnetwork.com. Tell me a little bit about the. I mean, I know it's not you're not like all comedian, but you know you're one of the few that I know. What is it? What is your work process like? Like occasionally, I can rip off a good joke just in the flow of the moment. But if I would ever sit down and try and write jokes, it would just feel like I don't know, squeezing a puppy out through my armpit or something like that. What is your uh, process for writing comedy? Yeah, well, I actually, I'm the same way. And a lot of comedians have different, you know, uh, styles and uh, everyone has their own process. Um, but I'm the same way. I like to kind of have an, I, I have an idea sometimes in my head and then I like to go on stage and try to deliver it and mess around. And then I audio record my sets and then listen to them later. So when I'm writing down, I'm usually just writing down like, oh, okay, I figured out the joke. So that joke, this joke, that joke. But I like to be sp uh, spontaneous and, and kind of vamp when I'm on stage. And uh, that's usually how I do most of my, my good writing is on stage. Oh, so you just want to remember, I actually remember the, the band, the Guess Who came up with American Woman. Uh, and the reason they came up with that song, they didn't actually write it. They were just jamming on stage. Someone in the audience happened to be recording their jam and said, you know, this that riff is really good. You should, I should think about writing a song. And they're like, you know, that is a really good riff. Maybe we should, <laughs> you know, so it's funny just how that live stuff can uh, just germinate into something wild and and so because i've seen you know the post-it notes and the it looks like a conspiracy theorist wallpaper sometimes watching comedians organize the jokes and all of that but do you record stuff and then have it play back or do you just kind of remember yeah. oh that was a good bit in the middle well, I will remember sometimes, but I'll record it just on my phone, just like hit the, the audio recording, just because sometimes you end up forgetting them. But you're you're I love that song. And I didn't know that story. That's really cool. Um, but, uh, you know, like of your, you know, on your um, some of the live speeches that you've given, you know, back back when you were allowed to give live speeches, not just because of back when not just wasn't just the, the studio uh, band. Yeah. <laughs> No, but not not just you know not just the commie virus, but the uh, the living commie virus, the physical commie virus that would come shut down your uh, uh, speeches. You you've been getting commie viruses left and right, but um, but even right like you've you've done all of these videos. I mean, just a, a, an insane amount of of uh, shows you've put out, and then you have the ones where it's like a live speech, and it's there's something different about that. Like it's a different energy when you're up in front of a room actually speaking to people and not just communicating, you know, this way to, to people. There's, and so there's something about that with comedy that it's just a different energy when you're in this live performance and there's people there responding and laughing and, 
that's I, I gotta say I missed that. Oh, that back and forth with the audience. The audience is someone to dance with. It's someone to play with. You're not just up there like a like they put a television screen up there and you're just broadcasting. It's a real back and forth. And if you can get into that dance with the audience, it's incredibly relaxing and makes it for a very enjoyable experience. And of course, you do have to do something live that you don't do just on a, on a broadcast. And so that playing back and forth. How does it work with you uh, we're just waiting for people to fill in here. Apparently, nobody got any notifications. Thanks, YouTube. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, I'll, I'll throw a couple out on Twitter here. But what is it like playing with the audience? Because, of course, you know, there's the good, there's the light and the dark. There's the angel and the devil in the audience when it comes to comedians in particular, which is those who are enjoying what you're doing and those who are like, man, I could have been a comedian, but I didn't. I was too chicken, but at least I can troll this comedian by being a heckler. I mean, how does that work out for you? Well, usually, I mean, at the point I'm at now, when I was going on the road, it's the the room is pretty filled with my audience. Right. Um, so at this point, if somebody's going to try to heckle me, they're going to have a tough time because the rest of the room is already on my side. But in previous, you know, years when I didn't have uh, a following, um, there, I mean, I've I've had you know drunk New York City crowds, plenty of uh, plenty of hecklers before, and there's very different, you know, there's all these weird like social psychology things. So if you come up and you like if you tell like two or three jokes and they get big laughs and then someone tries to heckle you, it's very easy to shut them down because now you're you've already established yourself as the funny guy in the room and this guy's going against the funny guy so you can kind of slam them pretty easy. The toughest one is when you get up there and you tell one joke that doesn't get a laugh and someone heckles you from that. So you haven't established yourself at all, you know, and and now this guy's like challenging you in front of the in front of the group for dominance or whatever. Um but there's, you know, you kind of you learn different techniques. Usually you try to let them hang themselves and find a way to make them alienate themselves from the rest of the crowd, you know? But it's 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 fun. I enjoy that stuff. And it is, I've always found comedians and, and hecklers, it's a very weird relationship to me. Maybe you can sort of break it out for me. I know this is not the central topic of what we're talking about, but I'm interested nonetheless. So, uh, so it's weird. Like, I'm not a big fan of, I don't know, like Harry Styles. He just strikes me as a kind of low-rent David Bowie. But anyway, uh, so I'm not going to go to a Harry Styles concert. Like, I can't imagine... You know, planning my evening around, I'm gonna buy, gonna go buy a ticket to a Harry Styles concert, and I'm gonna stand at the front and go, "You suck, Styles!" Like all night long. Like, okay, I just don't like the guy in particular. He's fine, you know, but I just that is an odd thing to. Do you think it's just thwarted comedians, or or like what is the story with with hecklers? Yeah, I think I think comics get it a little bit worse, right? Because even if you're if you were at a concert and someone plays a song that you don't particularly like, you still kind of just clap when the music is over. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of polite and and it's like and there's something about it where you know someone's playing an instrument and most of the time, I mean, unless you're a musician a musician yourself, you're looking at that and you're like, well, I can't really do that. So they just did this thing that I. But when you're just talking and trying to be funny some some drunk idiot in the front row is like i can talk and be funny i'm that so so there's just this kind of thing where there's not like that respect level uh kind of built in and then you know there are it, it's weird but i think it's somewhat like the same psychological trait as as people who will uh you know post things in a comment section or on on twitter you know these kind of not not that if somebody you know if somebody were if somebody were to post something like on a comment section of one of your videos and they went you know i think uh steph is flawed in his reasoning on this or this is what i think is that you know i'm nothing against that but i'm talking about the ones where someone will just post just going oh these idiots don't know what they're talking about you're like what's 
why why would you add this adds nothing you made no point you're just trying to destroy rather than you know be constructive at all but as the internet has shown us there's a whole lot of people who really like to do that now but what is the difference so there's a lot of people in my life like i grew up surrounded by people who were like like seriously awesomely funny like get people in stitches and and all of that they did funny songs they did um they tried to write skits and all of that but there's something so fundamentally and enormously different about being funny at a dinner table and funny in front of an audience. I don't think people recognize what an evil Knievel canyon that is to motorcycle across. I, I loved uh, one time uh, someone asked Jerry Seinfeld, they go, were you, uh, were you the funny one in school? And he said, he goes, we were all funny in school. And then everybody else got jobs. <laughs> and I, I just thought that was like the perfect summation of the whole thing. It's like, yeah, funny is, you know, I've, I've known people growing up who were like some of the funniest human beings I've ever known in my life. But stand up is a little bit different. It's, it's a very specific thing. It's not, it's not, are you funny as much as can you tell funny? And are you comfortable telling funny to a room full of people? Because I also know, you know, people who are like really, really funny, but would not be comfortable uh, getting up at, in front of a group of people in the same way that I'm sure, you know, uh, a bunch of people who are just tremendous writers, mm. you know, like somebody who could just write the greatest um, you know, like, like book you've ever written. And you'd be like, Oh my God, this guy is a genius, but could not do a, a, podcast or could not do a video presentation or it wouldn't be a great uh, speaker it's it's a different skill set and and sometimes people have one and not the other you kind of have to have both um in order to be a stand-up so it's it's in the same way that it, you know again like there's uh, like i don't know uh, there's been some some really smart libertarian anarchist people i don't think I could think of any of them who could do what you do exactly, if, if that makes sense. Like, it's it's just a different skill set. Well, I did get the last blue background. So <laughs> you did, that's, that's true. A, <laughs> I've caught the market on blue shading. Um, okay, so we, we, what we're going to talk about today, uh, thanks to everyone who's dropping by. So I don't know if this has happened to you, Dave. It happens to me on a semi-regular basis. And, and, and the speech goes a little something like this. We kind of want to break that out and, and help people understand how a truly free society could deal with a pandemic effectively. The speech uh, goes a little something like this. Steph, you used to be a principled guy. You used to be a voluntarist. You used to be an anarchist. You used to be a libertarian. And now you're cheering, insert whatever it is, X program or whatever it is, or X restriction on the free people's movement around the world or whatever. And you're such a sellout and you've, you've totally betrayed your earlier principles and so on. And I don't know if you get this. Like every time you try and apply principled philosophy to the hurly-burly of actual politics, you know, politics being the art of the possible, what you can actually get done rather than what the ideal would be, everyone just kind of gloms onto you like mosquitoes on a dead elk with this kind of like, you sell out, you sell out, you sell out. Now, I listened to my conscience quite a bit. I was really struck by Socrates' stories about what he called his, his daemon, not the mat kind, but the kind of conscience kind. And I listen to my conscience a lot. And there are times where I'm like, mm, you know, I'm kind of drifting a little here and I go back. But my conscience is pretty quiet about all of the political stuff that I get involved in because I do have kind of a longer arc view of what it is that I'm trying to achieve, which I'm not, of course, promulgating because to say it would be to fail to achieve it. How have you, because uh, you do definitely take philosophical principles, libertarian and anarchic principles, apply them to politics. Uh, do you get this rat-tat-tat of uh, sell-out, sell-out, shill, shill, <laughs> gatekeeper, gatekeeper, whatever it is? Uh, grifter. Grifter is another, another big one. <laughs> and how do you feel that fits in with what you're doing? 
Well, I've gotten uh, a, a lot of criticism for um, for from you know from random libertarians for uh, my immigration uh, position, which I'm you know I'm sure you're no uh, uh, stranger to. Uh, but just because I, I basically being convinced by several people, and, and you were one of them, that truthfully speaking, there really is no uh, correct libertarian answer to immigration as long as government is is controlling the borders. And that's there, there's really there. What you have is it in the same sense that if uh, um, you said, you know, uh, the libertarian position is that uh, the government shouldn't run the schools and we, we would rather abolish public school. That would be the libertarian answer. Let private institutions educate children rather than the state, uh, you know, propagandizing them. However, if you have public schools, should the government let anybody who wants to walk into them? I, I mean, that doesn't seem it, it's not it's no more libertarian or less libertarian, but one seems really crazy and destructive and terrifying. And the other seems preferable while we're not in a libertarian world and we don't have our own libertarian defenses. Certainly a private school, we can be fine with them not letting any, anybody walk in. So it's just it's it's a it's a tough situation where you're not going to have a perfect libertarian answer in this situation there is no answer where there's not an initiation of of force against peaceful people either way open or closed or anything in between if the government's controlling them so i've gotten some uh, some heat for that and then what i get a lot of heat for uh more than anything else is just the uh the people who i've had pleasant conversations with <laughs> who i guess you're not allowed to have well yeah i mean you're you're one of them and and uh people like uh i, I had nick fuentes on my show a couple of times and i had michelle malkin on my show recently and people who i just think are kind of interesting and the fact that and and it's not as if i don't you know make clear where i disagree with them but th there's this weird uh game that you kind of have to play that a lot of libertarians have fallen into where it, you can talk to anyone on the left. I mean, I, I never got, I, I was on a, with a Jimmy Dore's show and I had him on my show because, you know, okay, he's a left-wing guy. I disagree with him on a lot, but you know what? He was really, really great on the Trump impeachment, on the Mueller investigation. He's really great on war and peace and, you know, a, a few other things that I really admire about him. So I had a real, real friendly conversation with him. We agreed a lot. Not a peep. No problem. Nobody gives me any, any crap for that one. But if I if I talk to Nick Fuentes and have a nice conversation with him, then I get all of this hate. Oh, you know, you're alt right adjacent or whatever it is they call you. So I just don't play by these rules that are clearly designed by the left that you can go as left as you want to. But if you take one step to the right, then all of a sudden you're evil. And so I just I, I you know, I'm, I'm in this game to tell the truth. And so I have no problem just being like, yeah, I think these rules are, are BS. Well, it's funny, you know, I have come, I had a couple of conversations with um, uh, Noam Chomsky and, and nobody ever said, wow, that must mean that you're a linguistics professor at MIT or something like that. <laughs> I mean, that must mean that you're a, a socialist or an open borders guy. It's like, no, just having a conversation. I find his explication of anarchism very interesting. And uh, he's got he's got a lot of great criticisms of U.S. foreign policy and all of that. But, you know, you have one conversation with Jared Taylor and suddenly you're suiting up into yeah. a peaked white hat or stuff like that. And it is, it's really, really sad. I mean, we really should have as many conversations with people. I've had Nick on my show. I've had Michelle uh, on my show and all of that. So, yeah, it's just it's just a sad thing. But it's people who can't debate. Right. All they do is try this not silly guilt by association game. They find the most reprehensible views of someone you've ever talked to and say, aha, you're endorsing, you're giving a perspective, you're giving a viewpoint. The moment that The New York Times hands back its Pulitzer Prize 
for uh, covering up the uh, Holodomor and uh, all of the Soviet crimes is when I'll start uh, worrying about guilt by association. But the left doesn't worry about it at all. I mean, good right. Lord, Barack Obama got elected when um, one of the uh, Weatherman underground terrorists was kind of heavily involved in getting him uh, started. So <laughs> the idea that we've got this guilt by association stuff, it's, it's lazy, puerile, intellectual garbage. All right. So uh, thanks for that. Let's, let's talk a little bit about... You know, this, there's no atheists in foxholes, you know, maybe because they're too smart end up being conscripted. I don't know. But this idea that there is no libertarian, there's no freedom absolutist in a pandemic. And it is kind of troubling to me that at the moment it's like, wow, you know, we really are in a big bind here. This is really, really terrible stuff. We better call the government. I, I really don't like that as a whole. Like society's fine as long as there aren't any big crises. But the moment there are big crises, boy, you got to call the government because they're just the big policeman who's going to come in and make everything right. Um, how have you been sort of processing the pandemic from a libertarian viewpoint or an anarchic viewpoint? Well, it's I, you know, I've heard the the, the same uh, things being said that there's no libertarian in a pandemic. I saw lots of blue check marks saying this is the death of libertarianism. This is the death of the. I mean, like, who could possibly defend the idea of a, of a free society when obviously we need the strong hand of the state to make sure people can't you know, are forced to be quarantined and make sure that people, you know, who who need help are taken care of and all of this. Um, and what I've tried to do for, for the most part is, well, two things. I mean, I guess number one is 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 to talk about what governments have actually done. And it's really it's really quite something to live through. I mean, what has been the most monumental failures of government on a global level? I, I mean, just uh, just mismanagement, incompetence, and evil, all on a on a massive global level, and that this is somehow supposed to be the the example that this is why we need them because of because the one scenario that you would dream up in your mind um, where this would prove that we need this government the most, they fail at that, and that's supposed to be proof that we we need them all the time. Um, and then I try to talk about how a free society could handle uh, things like this and what would be done. Um, but I, to me, what I really try to focus on right now is just the failures of government because they're, you know, they're everywhere. Oh, it's, um, oh, I can feel that Vesuvius rant starting down in my bowl <laughs> slash belly. So I call it the losing the house principle, which is if somebody is making predictions or making decisions and they're not in danger of losing their house, I frankly don't really care what they have to say. Like if you screw up as a comedian, at some point you're going to stop making money and you're going to lose your house. If I screw up in what I'm doing, and, and I don't mean offending people, that's kind of the job, right, as it is with you to some degree. But if I really screw up, then I'm going to lose my house. Now, that gives you a complicated set of variables to work with, right? Like you want to push the Overton window, you want to challenge your audience, but at the same time, you don't want them to, well, I guess not just take your house by not donating to you, but burn down your house because you've offended them too much. So, so this issue of who loses their house. And one of the things that really drives me crazy, I've been thinking a lot about the airlines lately, right? So the airlines are taking massive hits, probably some of the biggest hits, except for those, I guess, who um, thought that the price of oil was going to keep going up. But the executives who were flying in and out of Wuhan, who were flying in and out of China, they let those flights continue. And airlines are tanking, right? So maybe they'll go into bankruptcy, maybe they'll be taken over, maybe whatever, right? So what happens is their employees could lose their houses, 
right? The people who didn't have any influence in making the decision about whether to fly these germ-infected planes back and forth from China to the rest of the world. So the employees, right, the, the, the pilots, the stewardesses, the purserers, the baggage handlers, the, the ticket counter men and women, they all could lose their house, and they had no influence over these decisions. Now, the executives of these airlines are worth millions and millions and millions of dollars. They get paid millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. So even if the airlines go completely tits up, those guys don't, they're not going to lose their houses. That seems to me so terrible. In other words, the people who have the most consequences have the least input in those decisions. And that is really terrible to me. It's like, well, I don't study, but I get your marks if you study. Uh, that's just the worst conceivable incentive. Now, that's not a free market because there's this whole corporate corporation thing. It's this legal shield to mean that if there's profits in the corporation, you get to take them out and buy a house. But if you completely screw up your corporation as an executive, nobody can reach through that veil of corporate yeah. legal uh, personhood and take your house back. Now, that's a new thing in the free market. That's relatively recent. In the past, if you ran a bank and you ran that bank into ground, you lost your house. Like you would end up living under a bridge. So you were really, really careful. But all of this, sucking up all the money, buying all of the stupid toys in the universe, and if you screw things up, you get to keep it all? Oh, that to me, uh, and that would not, I would never, ever want to do business with a company in a truly free market where the executives could get to keep all the profits and would face no personal consequences for the losses. Yeah, and of course, on top of that, they'll get, they get these bailouts from the government. That's so right. then they get the bailouts, they get everything. I mean, it's the, and, and, you know, I think a lot of times people like don't they have this idea that if the airline companies were were to uh, not receive bailouts, that like there's no more planes that like the planes, <laughs> the planes would disappear, evaporate. you know, like right. Like as if they're it's like, well, no, what you, what you would want is to to absolutely that you would want companies to fail who shipped this disease in. I mean, you would want for the future for airline companies to be very concerned with things like this and to know that there can be bad uh, consequences. Now, what you said about the legal protections uh, uh, from the state for corporations, that's spot on. And that's terrible. And, and I think it's one of the worst things that the government does because it always gets blamed on, on the free market. You know, these are all government rules that protect big corporations. Um, but it is, I, I, I mean, look, there's the, the amount of cronyism that's going all around it. It's not just from the airlines. I mean, it's like everything, the Kennedy Center is getting, you know, $25 million over this. Um, you know, so Harvard, this is... And they're not even, yeah. they say they're not even giving the money back after they've laid off their cafeteria workers and sitting on a multi-billion dollar endowment. <laughs> yeah. And, and the point that you were making about the people, you know, who's, who aren't actually at risk and whose ho homes aren't at risk, it, this, is, this is so dominant all around the culture right now. I mean, it's just despicable to watch these Hollywood elites um, talk about how, hey, we're all in this together. We just got to stay home. You know, everybody. I mean, look, we all got $50 million in the bank. Just hang out in your mansion for a big deal. What's the, what's the the problem? Meanwhile, there's like, you know, some some married couple somewhere with, you know, three kids who uh, has been, you know, scr scrapping and saving to open a restaurant for the last 15 years and just opened it up. And they're watching their whole life uh, go down the toilet right now. And um, that, that someone, you know, Alyssa Milano is going to be like, hey, guys, we're all in this together. Let's just stay inside. Like, we're really not in this together. They're, we're in very different situations. 
Oh, well, we'll get to the whole kumbaya crap uh, a little bit <laughs> oh. later, because this, this, like, we're all in this together. It's like, uh, anybody going to get mad at communism? Oh, no, no, no. We're just going to hug each other and, oh, well, this terrible thing just fell from the sky, Dave, and we just have to find some way. It's like an asteroid. There's no way to have predicted it. There's no moral situation involved here. No, let's do it now. This communism thing, I feel that this, this treacly, gooey, syrup-up-the-nose kumbaya crap of, of hugs and soft piano music and, and sad people staying inside. It's all there to drag us away from looking at the real beast in the room, which is the communist government of China that covered things up, that released the virus into the world. Even if we say, hey, you know, it was completely from bats. Hey, let's go with that. That's just completely fine. I know the new rules. So let's say it's completely from bats. What is absolutely incontrovertible is that the Chinese government covered it up. And they covered it up with the participation of the communist in charge of the World Health Organization. They covered it up despite the fact that Taiwan was repeatedly warning the World Health Organization that China was covering it up. They sealed themselves. They sealed Wuhan off from China, but let Wuhan people go out and infect the entire world. This is the commie flu. This is the communist virus. And all of this obfuscating, let's just uh, hug uh, and, and uh, play soft piano and, and stare at our teddy bears and, and grieve this mysterious shadow that has passed over our land. It's like, no, that's not, that's not how things work. It's certainly not how it worked when I gave speeches. People got really angry and protested me and attacked buses and all that kind of stuff. Wh where's anybody protesting the Chinese embassies? Like, this is just not happening. It's like this is massive giant cover-up to rescue the reputation of communism from its inevitable effects. Yeah. And then in addition to all the stuff that you just said, that there were these doctors in China who blew the whistle on this thing early and were silenced by the Chinese government. And mm -hmm. there's no question the Chinese government did this to the world uh, one way or the other. Um, and and the, the truth is that our government, for being in bed with the Chinese government and these kind of global government organizations like the WHO and uh, and all this stuff, that they did it to us as well. And then, of course, you know, just the, the um, our government uh, giving all of the wrong advice and impeding all of the progress that could have been made. I mean, there's th this thing where they're like, there, there's a shortage of masks in the country. Like, you're really telling me this huge first world powerhouse that's the United States of America can't produce enough masks? Like, I can be having a conversation with you. You know, okay, I'll give you ventilators even. That's a sophisticated piece of equipment, but masks. And then you realize, oh, yeah, it's regulated as a medical device by the FDA. And this is why they can't produce enough because they have to get approval and this takes forever. And there's all these hoops. But, yeah, the stuff, the stuff on China is really, really disturbing. And I wish that some people would, um, you know, like sparse it out a little bit. It's not, you know, it'll be um, – it, 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 a lot of people will say like, oh, well, you're blaming China uh, for this goes, I am blaming the Chinese government. I have no problem with the Chinese people. The Chinese government is the worst thing that's ever happened to the Chinese people, with maybe the exception of previous Chinese governments. Um, but, you know, uh, maybe they're better than Mao Zedong was to the Chinese people, but they're pretty brutal. I mean, it's like, no, I'm I'm all uh, like, I don't look at those doctors who are blowing the whistle as my enemy. I think those were the, those are, you know, our friends. Those are good, uh, good people who tried to do the right thing. But the Chinese government who silenced them and locked them up for that, they are evil and should be recognized as, su uh, as such. But, you know, China, of course, has been lending our government trillions of dollars for quite a while now. They're completely in bed with them. There's all types of these shady, uh, you know, the Hunter Biden making all that money in, in China. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are all types of politicians who are bought off by, by Chinese businesses, which are basically the same as the Chinese government. Um, and uh, it's, it's a real big web of corruption. Well, China is much more dangerous than North Korea. 
And the world's response to North Korea has been to isolate it, to quarantine it, to, to put trade restrictions on it, and to harass it and so on. I mean, can you imagine writing an article saying, you know what we should do? You know, we, we make a lot of our medical supplies here. But what we should do as a country, as a culture, as a civilization, we should outsource the vast majority of our essential medical production to North Korea. That would be a fantastic uh, business plan. Everybody would look at you and say, what, are you crazy? You can't do that. I mean, it's a dictatorship. And, and it's going to give North Korea a massive amount of leverage, power, and control over us. Uh, and that would be a, a terrible thing to do. And yet, it seemed to have been perfectly natural, absolutely accepted, and a good, sensible business plan to outsource the vast majority of the essential stuff, except for food, which, you know, it's tough to move around as, as, as goods and services and, and medicines are. People are like, yeah, well, let's, let's, let's have a Chinese communist dictatorship uh, have massive sway over our finances, our electoral process, our manufacturing, all the stuff which we, I don't know, kind of need to stay this side of the six-foot-deep hole in the ground that we're all destined for eventually, but which we're being accelerated towards just a little bit by the communists in China. Yeah, and you never seem to uh, hear that much uh, about the outrageous humanitarian abuses by the Chinese government. I mean, it just doesn't, you know, you hear in, in like the corporate press, you hear a lot about, um, you know, if, if there's a war we're interested in starting. You know, you'll hear a lot about what Saddam Hussein does or what, you know, Bashar al-Assad or one of those guys. As soon as they, they want a war, then we really care about, you know, somebody cracking down on human rights, you know, abuses or something like that. Um but, you know, you don't hear much about China. I've heard more about Russia's treatment of gays than I have, which is like, I don't know, you know, like they're they're not allowed to get married or something like that. But it's it's not what what the, the Chinese are doing. They're not throwing them in, in death camps. Um, you don't hear about the China's uh, hu uh, human rights abuses and Saudi Arabia's human rights abuses and any of the countries that we're like, it, you know, our government is in business with. Those things tend to get overlooked. And, and just, it, you know, in addition to that, the, the idea of taking money from the Chinese government is, I mean, that is blood money, even and not even just by like our anarcho, you know, capitalist principles by anyone, by, you know, whenever it, it, which I know you've done uh, a million times before when you present the ideas of anarcho capitalism and people will say something about like the social contract or democracy. Well, we elect these leaders and therefore there's kind of this consent. So it's not really theft. Now, that's all flawed reasoning for its own. But how about China? I mean, they're not a they're not a democracy. Their their people didn't vote uh, to have this this government in there. So they th th that is clearly just stolen money. It's blood money that they've taken from from their people. And then will our government will just accept this money? And there's no problem with that. People should be outraged about the idea of of doing business with China in in any capacity. Well, okay. So let's just let's go. To Take a little a wee ride on the analogy train here, Dave. So imagine that there's some um, babysitter uh, wants to come and babysit your, your kids, right? And she's, I don't know, she's 15 years old and she's taking the babysitting course and so on, right? And you're like, wow, I really do need a babysitter. It'd be great to go out. You know, this is harkening back to the days when we could go out. But anyway, so you want to uh, hire this babysitter, right? So, you know, you get her name, do a little, little Google search, right? And... Um, Funnily enough, she's got a channel on some video site. And what she does is she cuts open kittens, you know, live kittens. She kills them with a rock and she cuts them open and holds it up and says, this is fun, right? She's some, like some 
crazy kid with a melted Barbie, right? Just really psycho stuff, right? Now, would you say, yeah, that seems legit. Let's have her be a babysitter. I'm sure that would be great. You know, let's hire Queen Barbie vivisectionist to, to look over our kids, right? You'd say, well, no, not only will you never be my babysitter, but I'm calling the cops because what you're doing is absolutely horrendous. Now, kittens are one thing and we care about kittens, but actual human beings are quite different. Uh, and, and of a different moral category. And of course, as I talked about, the Fallon Guy uh, representative uh, or, or practitioner on my show a couple of weeks ago, uh, China um, opens up people and sells their organs on the, on the black market for organ transplants. You can phone up a made-to-head order for the Chinese government to go take a political prisoner, unzip him like a body bag, take out his organs, and put them in you, and then toss his remains in the Yangtze. I mean, this is unbelievably horrendous stuff. Yet, of course, the mainstream media, what do they do? Well, they go after people like you and me. Why? Because we talk about peaceful parenting in a voluntary society and scientific facts that people don't like. But they won't go after, they won't go after an actual regime that tortures, mutilates, opens up, and sells organs from live political prisoners to whoever wants it. In fact, Israel had to ban this because people were heading out to go and get this, this kind of stuff. Uh, in other words, uh, oh, yeah, I know, next, uh, next Thursday on the 17th, I'm going to get a kidney from China. It's like, uh, how do you know that exactly? No, 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 the guy's on the, on the conveyor belt. He's on the assembly line. And covering up these crimes, look, it's one thing to cover up these crimes, which is absolutely appalling. But the degree to which the mainstream media has gone after people like me and people like you, ah. Uh, Oh, man. The fact that they're hurting now after covering up the crimes of communism, the fact that the mainstream media is hurting from the commie virus. Uh, I don't like karma, but I don't dislike karma either. I'm, I'm kind of on a neutral position with regards to this. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean. And of course, covering up, as you alluded to earlier in the show, covering up the crimes of communists has been what the mainstream media has been doing for like uh, about a century. Uh, this is all over the world in Russia and in, uh, in Vietnam and Cuba. I mean, all over the place. And uh, it's it's had really devastating effects on humanity. It's, you want to talk about a virus. Communism itself has been the worst virus uh, that, that humans have had to deal with, at least in the last hundred years. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's really it's, it's outrageous. And, and to see, you know, the um, the 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 guys at the World Health Organization covering for them while they were doing all of this stuff. It is the the amount of damage, you know, not just the um, the the whatever it is, a uh, uh, amount of deaths. I don't know what we're at right now in the in the country. I mean, I'm keeping track every few days, but it, it's a lot of people have died. But the, uh, think about the fact that there are um, I think the last count was something like 26 million people just in America who had applied for unemployment insurance. Since yeah. this uh, shutdown, now that's just people applying for the insurance. That's not counting anyone who's working under the table. That's not counting like people, you know, the cabbies and Uber drivers. Or just general self-employed small business owners. Yeah, yeah, sure, who aren't eligible for these programs. I mean, so there's just the actual number. I mean, who knows? It's probably when this is all over going to be close to 40, 50 million people who have lost their jobs over this. And that's just in America. This is happening all over the West. This is all happening because of, like, like you said, one way or the other, because of the Chinese government's uh, either failures or what seem more reasonably to be, you know, downright evil uh, response to this thing. And there should, at the very least, I mean, I'm not like advocating a war or anything like that. This is a country that has H-bombs. I don't think we're, we're going to get into a hot war with a country like that. That, that option went bye-bye a long time ago. 
but we should at least be aware of it. We should at least be saying none of us want to uh, uh, be in business with the Chinese government. We should at least, be, you know, they sh there should be some type of consequences. And uh, there's doesn't seem like there's going to be. Well, this, manu this, this manufacturing of hysteria about imaginary Nazis as opposed to a real clear and present danger coming from totalitarian China is one of the great misdirections. You know, like those magicians. I mean, don't get me wrong. I kind of like magicians, but in a way, but they're kind of annoying. Like, I know you're cheating me. I just don't know how. <laughs> right. But, but this sleight of hand where this... Wow, there's there's a couple of crazy Nazis in America, and that's what we're going to focus endless amounts of attention on, as opposed to a massive threat coming in from China that has now manifested itself in a very real yeah. fashion. Right? And What's actually happened? This is kind of a weird thing. What's actually happened, Dave, is that government overreach and government incompetence has now risen so quickly. It's like you know, like that boiling frog analogy. Uh, you know, you put the frog in, you slowly raise the water, it dies, it goes into hot water, it jumps out. So what's actually happened now is that government incompetence and overreach and, you know, walking past the Bill of Rights, trampling on the Constitution, there's this unhinged arresting people for having their kids play in playgrounds kind of stuff. People are actually noticing that the temperature has gone up really fast. And so rather than this being the death of libertarianism or the death of voluntarism or anarcho-capitalism, this is a wonderful opportunity. And I hate to say it's a wonderful opportunity in the midst of such disaster, but I'm kind of an optimist that way I try and, you know... Great. Uh, Wikipedia's written ba bad things about me. Well, at least they spelt my name right. So <laughs> I guess that's publicity, well, right? But there's something about that that I think is just part of the human condition. And it's kind of tragic that sometimes it takes really awful things for people to wake up. And there's a reason why the liberty movement probably had its best time uh, right after the financial uh, crisis in 2008. And there were these wars that were raging on that were just clearly becoming disasters. Nobody could defend the Iraq war anymore. You know, in 2004, 2005, 2006, they were still trying to. But by 2008, 2009, no one could defend the war in Iraq. Clearly, Afghanistan wasn't being won. And there was this huge uh, uh, bust in the business cycle. And really, the kind of Austro-libertarian anarchists were the ones who had an explanation for that. And that ended up leading to a really big kind of moment for libertarians. And figures like yourself became, you know, like wildly popular. And there was a lot of a lot of more people like, like me were brought into the movement and, and discovered these ideas. So I agree. I think there's a real, a real possibility right now, especially if people just understand that even if you get past moving past the Chinese government's response to this, if you just assume that's all done and that happened and there's nothing we can do about it, what our government in the United States of America did to our people is just, I mean, I, I cannot overstate how evil it was. First of all, you had the, um, you had the CDC and the FDA. The, the, when it first started coming over here, their, their first advice was, don't worry about masks. And you know what? You really shouldn't wear a mask. You're probably too stupid to figure out how deal. to put it on. It's not a big deal. Go hug a Chinese yeah, person. Yeah. Exactly. There's no problem with it yet. Like, yeah, come. That's literally Nancy Pelosi. Da come down to Chinatown. This is where. Come on, let's hang out with these guys. There's no problem here, guys. There's nothing to worry about. Then they, uh, they, they wouldn't allow tests to be produced. They wouldn't allow masks to be produced. They wouldn't allow ventilators to be produced. Um, they slowed down everything. And then when it got bad, and they realized this was a serious situation. When that when they were kicking these tens of millions of people out of work, and don't get this is not uh, people who just are too lazy to work and they want a handout from the government. These are people who want to work, and the government is telling them they can't. 
Um, and and while the, in in the hour of need, when people's lives are being ruined, they took that opportunity to rob the American people and to send trillions and trillions of dollars to the big banks. I mean, they in in the moment where people were at their most desperate, they went, "This is an opportunity to exploit this crisis," and 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 just. The, it was the greatest heist in in history has just happened over this last month. It's something I think it was up to seven or eight trillion dollars total. Okay, so break, break that stolen. out for me. I haven't been following that story as much. So if you can <laughs> explicate it for me and for the audience, because um, I've heard rumors, but I've been focusing on other things. So what's going on with the bank bailouts? So the well, the the real bailouts to the bank are from the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve just immediately printed up about four trillion dollars and extended it to all the big banks. And since then, I think they've they've put another trillion dollars into the big banks. So that's the first thing they do is that. And then of course you had the the two point two trillion dollar stimulus package from the Congress. There were all types of corporate welfare and handouts to their their friends and and big companies. And then you know that the you know, average person gets like a crummy 1200 bucks and that's how they justify it. You know, it's like everyone gets 1200 bucks, yet it's a, a 300 page bill that, that, you know, Thomas Massey, uh, who I just had on my uh, uh, podcast a, a couple weeks ago, who's one of the last, you know, quasi principled uh, people in, in uh, the, the American Congress. Uh, he, he was outraged by this thing. He goes, it's a complete, they didn't even vote on it. They just crammed it through. Um, and nobody was in Washington. Like the, the Congress wasn't there. So it just kind of got crammed through. Um, and then now that it looks like they're going to add another $500 billion in the second round, there'll probably be, uh, probably be another round after that. But the total number comes out to be somewhere near $7 trillion. Um, that's just been, and I mean, this is the, the future uh, of America has just been completely sold out and all for, for big bankers and big corporate interests. This is what the government has done. Um, and it's, it is really just, it's, it's morally criminal. Well, the, the whole foundation of this modern dangerous delusion is that the government has money. I mean, this is weird thing that they're not some rich uncle who saved and scrimped and had a great business and just happens to be handing out candy because he's uh, he he got uh, he read the Christmas Carol once too many and he's just uh, fire hosing money all over the family. The government has no money. They can send you twelve hundred bucks, but if they've just printed that money, uh, all that's going to happen is it's going to get diluted to the point where it's not really going to be worth anything. They don't have any money. Like uh, people are all. I was doing a little bit of things last week on Twitter. People saying Congress is funding this. Congress is spending. It's paying for this. It's like no, they're not. They have no money. Once you understand that the government doesn't. Have have any money and all it can do is borrow and print in order to give you the illusion that it has value it can add to the equation once you pierce through that's the real matrix man once you really understand the government doesn't have one thin dime to its name all it has is a bunch of guns pointed at people who are productive that's all it has it's not even redistribution it's dilution uh, it's indebting the next generation it is a form of intergenerational enslavement and it's just vote buying. Once you understand that, uh, you know, the, the, the criminals, uh, disorganized crime is the mafia, uh, sorry, organized crime is the mafia, disorganized crime is the government, and you recognize they got no money at all. That's one of the first illusions that I had to sort of pierce through in order to get my way to a free society, a stateless society. Statism is enslavement. Statism is coercion. Statism is violence. Statism is exploitation. Statism is the actual target we should have compared to this fantasy that somehow starting a business makes you an exploiter from a Marxist standpoint. Let's look at the giant, well-armed, machine-gun, tentacled monstrosity at the center of society that's only solution for everything is to buy and rob and steal and cheat and lie. 
Yeah, and it's not even as if it's this uh, this kind of academic hypothetical argument of should we take from the wealthy and redistribute it to the people who need it or something like that. You're taking from the working class and distributing it to uh, the rich. It's it's indefensible. Um, and yeah, of course, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. And this is this is the essence of why I am an anarchist. The government cannot do anything except rob people. That's all they're capable of doing. If they rob you through taxation, that's the most direct form. If they rob you through printing money, it's just robbing the purchasing power of your money. It's in effect the exact same thing. And if they borrow money, it's just a promise to do one of those two things in the future, which is, again, the same thing. And as you know, and, and the state is the enemy. The state should be the enemy uh, uh, for everybody. They are the ones that are facilitating all of this, all, all of this uh, uh, horrible um, response. It's all coming directly from the state. And then, as you pointed out before, they make up these enemies, you know, the Nazis or the racists. Those are the people who we have to go after. Meanwhile, you know, like when Biden's uh, uh, campaign, his first campaign ad was like about Charlottesville, as if that's like relevant to anything, because three years ago there was a rally of a couple hundred people who are bad. That's why we need to elect Joe Biden. You know, these 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 statists who act like they hate Nazis, they have no problem with actual Nazis. Obama and Joe Biden fought a a war in Ukraine. They had a regime change there and worked with real deal Nazis, not like the made up kind, like real national socialists. Not to mention that freaking, uh, you know, NASA had no problem absorbing a whole bunch of Nazis (laughs) after the Second World War. These people have no problem with Nazis. They just use this as like a boogeyman. Uh, to come after other people. But don't don't get it twisted. The real Nazis are the people in control of the state right now. They're the real fascists. So let's talk about something that happens quite... Sorry, here I am ordering you what to talk about, much like a Nazi. But uh, no, let's, let's talk about the common pattern that happens. So when people hear a stateless society, a society without a government, it's like... And their defenses, which are well-programmed defenses. This is not organic thinking. Because, you know, if we have a neighborhood watch or we have a neighborhood community or some sort of uh, community uh, group in our neighborhood, we would never sit there and say, well, what we want to do is disarm everyone. We want to arm these couple of people and whatever they say goes and, and we have to obey them or they'll lock us in a tiny basement somewhere. I mean, th- we would never sit there. And that's, it's perfectly organic to work for voluntary and peaceful and negotiated solutions to society. Uh, anarchism is the only philosophy that recognizes two fundamental things. One human beings have a great potential for evil, and two, power corrupts. You put those two things together and you come up with, with anarchism. Also, you know, the principle to application of the non-aggression principle and so on. People's minds get blown and the defenses come up. You know, we've all had these conversations about a jillion times, you know, the roads, the poor, the healthcare, the sick, or the, the old, all that kind of stuff. But this one is like, okay, well, it's very nice to have your little anarchic uh, fantasies, but when a big problem like a pandemic comes along, you need the government to make it all come together and make it all work out. And the pandemic one's kind of new. <laughs> Frankly, it, it feels like it's a, a whole new vacation for me from the Marauds situation. So how do you think a free society, a voluntary society, a society without a state, in other words, a society that recognizes that power corrupts, Let's say there is a pandemic. It's not like the whole world would become free. Let's say America was a truly free society. A, uh, a disease starts to erupt uh, over there in China. Then what? Yeah. And, and just to add to your point, I mean, even if the whole world were to become free, it is still potentially possible. There's viruses. I mean, bad things happen. And yeah. anybody who tells you they have a solution where nothing bad will ever happen again is just full of crap. Like, that's just utopian nonsense. And so, yeah, OK, a virus, a, a pandemic, maybe something much worse 
than COVID-19. I mean, it, it could happen. There have been worse uh, pandemics in the past. Um, so I, I would say that, first of all, and, and part of this is me, you know, pointing to the example of what the state has done in this situation, but what you'd want um, it seems to me, particularly in the COVID situation, right, is you'd want mass testing. You'd want uh, you'd want a, a larger capacity for the hospitals. That was the big fear from the very beginning, which doesn't seem, thank God, to have come true. But the big fear was that the hospitals were going to be completely overrun and you'd have people dying in stairwells and things like that. You want masks produced, ventilators produced, all of these things. Now, all that having a government has done has slowed all of this down. Uh, there's just a, a ton of rules and regulations about how exactly you can produce ventilators and masks. There were um, like labs, very reputable labs that were trying to produce uh, tests for COVID that were turned down by the FDA. Now, I'm not saying in, in a free society we would just want to buy a COVID test from, you know, some guy in his basement who's making it and we don't know if they're real or not. But if there's a lab, a reputable lab that's been doing really great work for decades, yeah, we would probably want them to be producing tests if they say that they've gotten it. There's no reason why the government has to be the ones to check up on that. You could have some third well, they, party. They, they're going and getting tests from China. China doesn't right. have the FDA. So what's wrong with, with American companies and, doing it? And if you look at the, um, the best of Donald Trump's response, uh, to to this situation, he's been just try his whole team. They've been trying to slash red tape left and right because that's the problem here is that there's all this red tape slowing up the response. So of course, in a stateless society, you get rid of all of that. We don't have any of this this government red tape. So right away, um, there's it's it would be much easier to have a, a fast response to this situation. The other thing I touched on is the hospital beds. Right, this has been a, a major problem. Now, what you have all throughout the United States of America are these certificate of need. Uh, legislative uh, legislations. So that basically what it says is that the hospitals have to agree to give you permission for you to build another hospital. And when people think of hospitals, they don't think of business, they think of public service. But by the way, sorry to interrupt, but money? I just wanted, just wanted to mention everyone that uh, Dave and I are in fact lobbying the government so that if you want to start another podcast or channel, <laughs> uh, you're going to have to go through us. And, and right. I'm very grabby. I'm very grabby right. indeed. It will be quite and, a violation. And, and of course, even when people aren't like bad people, if you line up all of the incentives the wrong way, it might be really easy for me and you to start convincing ourselves that, you know, we've got enough podcasters and people could really do other things. And, you know, it's like you you kind of make your own incentives work in your mind, you know, uh, uh, ethically. Um, so there's a lot of that. So I don't know how many hospital beds there would be in a free society, but there would certainly be more. There's no question about that. There'd be more. So we'd be better prepared for that. And I would also point out in terms of, I think the one that, that people have the, um, the, the toughest time with to me is like the quarantine aspect, the isolating aspect. And the truth is that if you, if you look all around you, the market is responding to this. And in, in an anarcho-capitalist society, property owners can ban people from traveling onto their uh, community. I think certainly people would be like, hey, you just came back from Wuhan. Sorry, can't come in here right now. And there would be a lot. You know, this is, by the way, back to our original point. I think this is one of the problems that a lot of the more left-leaning libertarians make is that they think libertarianism is all about inclusion. But truthfully speaking, property rights are about exclusive rights. And that that there can be as much inclusion or exclusion as as the property owners want. And I see all around me uh, real like miracles in the market. Um, things even before it was legislated, nursing homes stopped letting people come visit. It was just like, no, it's, it's a sad situation. My wife's uh, grandfather is uh, is old and, and in not good health and in a nursing home and she can't visit him. 
Um, and it's sad, but you know what? It's like, this is the most vulnerable population here. So sorry, no visitors coming in. They made that call before the government told them to. Supermarkets had limited how many uh, rolls of toilet paper you can get because people were going crazy and buying lots of rolls of, of toilet paper. And they were like, no, 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 we want to serve all of our customers. There was no law that made them do that. So the market responds to these things in, in ways much faster, uh, much more effectively, and without the evil of arresting someone and throwing them in a cage for having a catch with their daughter in the park. You know, it's it's just a much better solution. And I've also thought about, as I said, the airline. So if someone were to mail you a package containing some virus, right, they, they put a virus in the package and they mailed it to you, uh, that would be considered a criminal action. Now, when you're picking up people from overseas that you know are at the epicenter of a dangerous new virus and you are delivering them to a new society, it seems to me that the same criminal intent is, is there. In other words, you're, you're profiting by taking these people's money uh, and then you are delivering people who have a high likelihood of being infected with a disease to a virgin territory, right, where people don't have herd immunity, where it is, uh, uh, it is uh, untested on the local immune systems and so on. So that, I think, in a, in a free society, there, of course, there, there is the difference between civil and criminal complaints and so on. There would be civil complaints for sure, but it would be a criminal action to knowingly deliver risky items, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, sarin in an envelope or whether it's a human being infected with COVID-19, there would be criminal actions. So I think that the heads of the airlines, because the airlines is the problem, right? The airlines is what brought this to America, right? So they, of course, in a free society, wouldn't be able to hide behind corporate immunity. They wouldn't be able to you know, filibuster all this way. There would be no bailouts. And, and also, even if they survived the criminal actions or criminal complaints, they would lose their houses because people would sue them for causing the death of a loved one by delivering the bioweapons of perhaps unwitting Chinese passengers to local airports. So there is an accountability there that under the current legal system, doesn't really apply. Like people are saying, oh, well, we're going to go and sue China. It's like, yeah, well, China's bad and they're a communist government, which everyone knows. But uh, who actually brought the virus to, uh, to America, to Canada? Well, it was the airlines right now. Some of them would be Chinese airlines, in which case it would be, okay, how, who runs the airports in a free society? They would be privately run. Did you allow planes to land carrying people knowing that there was a significant danger that they could infect the local population? Well, boom. You know, you've got criminal complaints, you've got civil complaints, and you're going to lose your house. The prospect of going to jail and the prospect of losing your house, that is going to concentrate people's minds and give them accountability. But what's going on right now is people are making all these predictions and making all these decisions. There's no accountability for any of them. And, and I've said this before. If someone doesn't lose his job for making a bad series of predictions, I don't care what they have to say. They've got no skin in the game. It doesn't matter to me what they say. And we can see how these pandemic projections have been wildly off. Uh, and, and who's losing their job because of it? Who's losing their jobs because other people are losing their jobs, getting addicted to drugs, committing suicide, uh, stressed, getting sick? Who's losing their jobs because of these not just faulty, but wildly off by factors of 10 or more pandemic projections. They're not losing their jobs. And so the wonderful thing about a truly free society is everyone has some skin in the game. You actually face the consequences of your own decisions rather than right now running for a bailout, retiring to your country estate, never having any concern. 
people needed to make those decisions back in January, back in February to say, got to suspend flights, guys. It's like, yeah, but, you know, but it's going to cost us money. It's like, yeah, well, you know what's really going to cost us money? Spreading this disease, even if you take out the moral aspect, which should be front and, front and center. Yeah, and then on, on uh, I uh, absolutely spot on. And then on top of all of that, the problem that that we run up against uh, is this kind of that that politics uh, just take over everything that the state does. So if Donald Trump were to say, "Hey, I really think we should we should you know uh, tighten restrictions on travel to China," then what's again? Well, Trump said it, so that means the Democrats have to be completely against it, and mm. he's racist and he's that. Now, of course, you know now they'll say, "Oh, Donald Trump didn't respond quick enough and lock everything down," but we all know what they would have said if Donald Trump had tried to lock things down in January. They would have said, "He's Hitler. See, here's the proof. He's and this is so." Now you get this just just mind-numbing pissing contest where Donald Trump says, hey, I think we need to open up soon and get back to work because this is really destroying, uh, you know, the economy. And so then de Blasio, the, the mayor in New York, has to dig his heels in and say, no, we're going to be locked down for the rest of the year. And it's just this this thing where in, you know, not that there's no such thing as politics in other areas, in business and things like that. There are, there are favorites and there are, you know, these, these feuds and battles that go on. But in government, it's like all they have. And so it just takes over the entire system. And you, it, it's really just terrible because people are scared and hurting and they're looking to these people to be their leaders. And you get these people who demagogue, you know, Andrew Cuomo, who gets up there and says, um, you know, if if these actions can save one life, then it'll be worth it. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, sir, but that is not how a cost-benefit analysis works. You don't just say, if we save one life, this is worth it. We could all never get in the car again uh, tomorrow, and that would save one life. But actually, we've decided that the unthinkable, uh, you know, destruction that that would cause is worth is worse than one life being lost. You actually have to think about these things like an adult and not just just demagogue them. And and you don't get that out of politicians. Well, living in debt means you never have to grow up. Right. You never have to make difficult decisions. So the other thing, too, when it comes to quarantine, uh, that everybody's so used to the government. All the government has is negative incentives, right? They just throw you in jail, arrest you, whatever it is. But what's what's wrong with positive incentives? What's wrong with somebody who's coming off a plane and, you know, the, the financial risk or the financial consequences of them going out and infecting an unknown number of people is in the millions or tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Or trillions, you know, which may be the case with this long-term slowdown throughout the West. So if you look at that big trough, what's wrong with saying them, okay, you've come off this plane, got a 14-day quarantine. Now, don't sweat it though, man, because we're going to put you up in a beautiful hotel. We're going to pay you $50,000 to be quarantined for 14 days. And you're going to love it. And, you know, we're going to make sure your, your kids are taken care of. We're going to, you know, like mafia style, your hubby goes to prison or something like that. What's wrong with like, wouldn't that have been a great, great deal to just even if people do kind of get off the plane and there's some risk or whatever, just go and bribe them with whatever it takes to, to sit in. A, I mean, would you take 50 grand, assuming you're not a dad, to go sit in a beautiful hotel and, you know, watch TV or work out at the gym if they you know can keep it private? Just pay people to do it. I mean, it's such a great cost-benefit analysis. Everybody just thinks, well, you just got to threaten people. It's like there's positive incentives that could be fantastic, and companies would very gratefully pay that in order to avoid the consequences that we're seeing now. 
Yeah, that's a really great point. And I didn't even think about it uh, like that, but that's a really great point. And the truth is that we're paying either way. I mean, the taxpayers are paying. We're paying to imprison them. We're paying for the policeman's salary to go round them up. Like all these things have costs either way. And even as you said, look, I mean, I would I would be, uh, you know, very, very upset. Has, that's an understatement to not see my daughter for two weeks. But if someone were to explain to me, like, look, we think you just came from a dangerous area and there's a real chance that you could end up getting your daughter sick if you go see her and don't stay here for the, you know, the two day, the two weeks and we'll make sure she's taken care of. We're going to send a check, this check to your wife. They'll have everything they need. I could probably be persuaded that, yeah, this is probably the best thing for the health of my wife and daughter, which really is, you know, my number one concern. Uh, so that's, you know, and, and yeah, there, that's, that's a really, really excellent point that positive, um, uh, positive, uh, rewards can, can be just as much. And I think psychologically there's some, uh, there's some some evidence that that's actually more effective than uh, negative repercussions. I remember very quick uh, tangent. I just remember because this just came into my mind. But I remember no uh, no what, tangents <laughs> on this show, Dave. You know the rules. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. This is a tangent friendly show. Right. I know that. Wait, there's uh, something that's not a tangent. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> so I used to uh, my my very good friend Louis J. Gomez, a hilarious comedian, also a, a peaceful parent, um, and uh, he I, I'm very close with his son, who's like seven now. And I remember watching him. This is back when he was like four, and I was uh, I, I was babysitting him, uh, which I used to do regularly. Like I would come uh, uh, spend time with him. I've known him his whole life. And I remember I, I was saying when he would uh, just, you know, as a four-year-olds tend to not always listen uh, to you, especially four-year-old boys. And when you're trying to kind of get them to do something or it's time to do this, it's time to go home or whatever. And I would say, and I said this a couple times to him, uh, where I'd say, hey, James, I'm going to tell your father that you weren't listening to me. And when I would say this, when he was four years old, he, it would make him very upset. You know, because he really loves his father. He doesn't want to be, you know, reported back that he did something bad. And I remember it would be really upset. And I did it like twice. And I just didn't like the way it felt. And I was like, oh, man, I'm like creating this bad moment. And he's nervous and he's weird. And then it just like a light switch just flipped in my head where I just went, oh, James, if you uh, if if we get our shoes on and we go now, I'll tell your dad how great you were for me. <laughs> and then he would do it. And now I'm like, oh, my God, I'm not creating this horrible moment. I'm just flipping it to positive rewards and you're not using of, his dad as a, a threat against him you yeah, know which is like yeah. something but you don't want to be fostering that right but that is but right exactly and I, I i recognize that immediately but that is kind of part of the the peaceful parenting thing is like when you take the kind of violent response out, off the table then you can get creative and find these non-violent and like positive ways to do it and it was like the second i did that i was like oh my god i can't believe that didn't come to me right away and okay i understand the whole world isn't four-year-olds but yeah we could really focus on that type of a uh, uh, response as a society to you know reward people for doing the right thing rather than uh throwing them in a cage which by the way it's not the best place to be in a pandemic <laughs> well unfortunately roger stone is probably going to find that out in a week or so um no. okay so given that you've uh, voluntarily i will say opened up the peaceful parenting box let's just do a couple minutes on that peaceful parenting is the app it's the most powerful application of philosophy in your life because we can't go single-handedly end the Fed or change foreign policy or control pandemic responses, but we can apply the non-aggression principles in our own lives, in our own relationships, and there's no more important, more powerful, and more moral place to apply it than in parenting. But people are just kind of used to back-of-my-hand stuff when it comes to parenting. So um, what's happened with your daughter? And I forget how old she is now. Sorry for that. But um, how, how's that been working out for you? Well, she's she's 16 months and she's just incredible. And she's, you know, kind of, you know, drunk running around doing that little 16 month old walk where they're falling off balance and 
And there's more vertical movement than horizontal movement at that age, right? She's bouncing out, bouncing side to side, drifting forward a little bit. It's like watching a tree jog. It's really, I mean, it's just, it's really the best. I mean, for anybody who's uh, out there who uh, maybe you're thinking about uh, having kids or planning it out in the future, there's really nothing better than than being the father to a little girl. And I know uh, you you know that uh, experience as well. And it's just, it's incredible. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was I I was passionate about peaceful parenting, you know, from listening to you. And also it just kind of was, I think, was always my instinct. Like, yeah, that's really wrong to hit kids. But I really heard you, you know, break it down into a, a thought out philosophy. And I was like, well, this is just obviously the case. That was well, way before I had kids. But now having a daughter that's 16 months old, uh, the fact that people hit their kids at this age, and they, yeah, do, they do, it is, I, I just, I, I cannot wrap my head around it. I mean, it's like, you know, my, my daughter's 16 months. So what happens when they're 16 months is they're kind of walking, um, but they're not, you know, they're not the most coordinated. So they fall. This happens a lot during the day. They fall over, they hurt their self, they bump their head, they do this. And it's horrible every time. I mean, every time. Do you rather just, take the blows yourself, right? Oh Please, my just, God. I'll hit, the, I'll hit the ground. Just don't you hit the ground. I mean, it's like probably about 70 times a day, my like heart just skips a beat because I'm like, ah, oh, oh. Uh, my little and, death magnet. How's your day going? Oh, it's basically, it's 90% of, of being the uh, a parent to like a one year old is stopping them from doing something that would kill themselves like yeah. no 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 we don't do that that oh, that would yep that would be a disaster you don't. can invite the but, angel of death as an adult but right now daddy's fending him off yeah the, but the idea that we would uh uh you know create a situation where she's hurt create that in, in that mentally and physically is just it's it's really horrible for me to think about well and sorry and, she and she, she, she gets accepted. hurt and she comes to you for comfort if yes. you hurt her where does she go for comfort yeah. And the fact that it's accepted and, 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 you know, it's like what you were saying, it's, it's, it's twofold. It's not just that it's the most applicable area of our philosophy where we can actually put it to real use, but it also says something about you. If you don't put it to use there, then you don't really believe in any of this stuff to begin with, because as soon as the, the only reason why it's acceptable um, to to hit children and basically nobody else in society with with the exception of like grown men if they're being you know threatening or violent we really don't accept hitting anybody uh, else in society the reason why it's acceptable is because they're just too small and too weak and too uh you know not you know uh developed in the brain to do anything about yeah, they it. have no legal like, recourse and yeah. you can just do it yeah, I mean, if I if I were to hit my wife, which of course I also would never do, but that's not nearly as immoral as it would be for me to hit my daughter. I mean, my wife can leave me; she can call the cops. She's Italian; she might win that fight. Uh, she might. <laughs> She's just, a biter, then. Okay, got it. Yeah, she might. It might just end up working out bad for me without any other uh, recourse. But the the to the fact that we would just accept this idea of of you know physical violence to correct behavior, but only amongst uh, you know, the, uh, children is just, it's a moral outrage that is indefensible. And people, this is one of the things people get very, very bothered when you bring up this conversation, because there is, it's, there's a real emotional connection to it. Oftentimes you're pointing out that somebody's parents were really bad parents. Oftentimes you're pointing out that someone themselves has been a pretty bad parent. And that's a very bitter pill to swallow, uh, especially when you realize you don't really have an argument to back up why it's okay. But that that just means it needs to be discussed that much more. Well, you know, you can see this flip around. Not all. Some libertarians have very much embraced this, Dave. But, you know, taxation is theft. Yeah. 
Spanking is child abuse. What? No, no, no. <laughs> right? It's like, well, one you can do something about, the other one you can't. And it's very easy to focus your moral outrage on things that are beyond your control when you try to bring philosophy and morality into the things that you can actually control. That's when the rubber meets the road and you find out if your values actually work. And I just, you know, I'm telling people, I mean, I'm a little further down the road than Dave. My daughter is now uh, 11 and it works beautifully. Uh, it, it works more, it works even better than I can uh, have imagined. So um, that's that's the uh, that's the plus. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much for your time today, Dave. Always a great pleasure to chat. Uh, you had mentioned that um, there are some road-driven comedians who are having a really, really uh, tough time. I wonder if you could give some advice to them because, you know, this is not a very funny time for them at all. Yeah, it's challenging. I mean, I know there are some people who are getting creative with doing stuff on Zoom and trying to do, you know, kind of reach out to their audience that way. But it's it's a, a the, the one thing that we do have going for us is that we have the Internet and you can kind of, you know, reach out to different people and, and try to be creative. So that's kind of my best advice. I think that people, a whole lot of comedians got into podcasting. And thank God for that, because that uh, otherwise it would be it would be that much worse. But it's not just that the clubs are uh, uh, are are closed down temporarily. We really don't know what's going to happen going forward. Certainly, a lot of these businesses in general are not going to come back. There's a lot of yeah. I know I know the um, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warrens of the world think that if you own a business, that basically means you're a billionaire. Like that's the same <laughs> right. thing, you know. But in reality, as anyone who's ever owned a business knows. Uh, Quite often, there are razor thin profit margins, and some of these places are never coming back. Also, the psychological effects of this virus a lot of people may not really want to go sit in a nightclub where you're right on top of other people. Um, so, there's going to be a real uh, a, a shakeup in the comedy scene, and I think people got to start preparing for that and getting, uh, you know, getting adjusted. And uh, don't don't count on uh, uh, the government uh, checks to, uh, uh, to to be your your go-to. Yeah, there is. Um, it's really important to remember there is no post-COVID, right? There is no returning to the way things were. Maybe they'll come up with some completely wonderful uh, vaccine or that's perfectly safe, but that's going to be a long time. I mean, 93% of vaccines face their, have failed their first trials, and you really don't want to take 1.0 of an operating system or a vaccine, come to think of it. So uh, really, really plan for the long haul. You know, holding your breath while underwater can keep you alive for a little while, but it's not a long-term strategy uh, for that. We need to get the scuba gear of forward planning. And I've told people from the very beginning, uh, yeah, don't really plan. Uh, this is a permanent part of our epidemiological and social landscape and our economic landscape. Uh, just, you know, don't hold your breath and thinking that you can surface anytime soon. It's really time to adapt. And so uh, just give people once more your vital statistics on the web to make sure they can get a hold of what is a truly excellent podcast. Oh, thanks so much. Well, I'm Comic Dave Smith on Twitter. The podcast is part of the problem. You can get it at uh, gasdigitalnetwork.com or iTunes or YouTube or any of the other places you get uh, you get podcasts. And as always, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you, Steph. Well, thanks, Dave. Uh, a great pleasure, too. All my very best to you and your family. And just a reminder, people, I'll put the links to this below. Uh, be sure to check out Dave's show. And thanks a lot for your time today. All right. Thank you. Excellent. Always a pleasure, man. All right. Thanks, man. See you soon. All right. Bye. Best of luck to you and the fam and everything. Talk to you soon. Bye.